Can you hear it with your ears? Can you feel it with your eyes? Can you... Let's start that over. Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Once every millennium, something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it cause it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Sit back, relax, deep breaths, no stress. Let me come inside your mind. I promise you it won't take long, the change will happen soon. You will feel something so special growing deep within you. That thing, that thing, that thing thing with James, that thing, that thing, that thing with James, that's me. Welcome to episode 30, 30, 30 of That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, James J. Asher II. Hi. How you doing? Wow, that's great. Wow, really? Cool. Glad I could hear all that. Now, now it's my turn to talk. Let's take care of some business before I dive into today's episode, which, by the way, is about a subject I think about quite a lot. Reality. But before we get into that, let's deal with some uh, lower realities of Donations. If you want to donate to the show, you're welcome to do so via my Patreon account. Patreon.com slash that thing with James. It's a monthly donation setup and I have multiple tiers available. Um, you can pay as little as $1 per month. I say pay, donate as little as $1 per month or as much as $15,000 per month if you have fuck you money, or if you're really bad at money management, or if you just wanna take a gamble on me, and I'll tell you right now, if you gamble with me, the odds are in your favor. Wink. Patreon.com slash that thing with James if you wanna donate to the show, help me, uh, Help me help you by keeping you entertained and by keeping this show running. Um, if you want to contact me, hit me up. My email is thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. Um, all this stuff will be written in the, in the description um, of this episode. Thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. If you just want to reach out and say hi, that's cool. If you have an idea for a subject, for an episode, 
send it my way, man. I'll probably, I'll probably talk about it and I'll probably, probably reply to you. Uh, I don't get many emails, so it's not like I don't have an excuse to not reply to you. Um, also, if you like it, are in need of some advice, I can cover that on the show. It can be confidential. I can keep your name secret um, and, and details secret, but I'm willing to try to throw in my two cents for your dilemma. And if you just have any questions about me, I'd, I'd be more than happy to answer them on the show here. If, if you so desire, let me know. Again, that thing with James at gmail.com. Or you can probably message me on social media. I'm active on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at James J. Asher, at J A M E S J A S H E R, all together, baby. At James J. Asher. And you can also visit my website, jamesjasher.com. There you can find on the contact page um, my agent's contact info. I also have a blog there. If you go way, way back before I started this show, you'll see some of my writing, some like writing examples, stuff that I haven't looked at in a number of months. And it's probably good that I haven't because if I did go back and look at it, I'd say, man, I'd do so much better now. <laughs> That's the thing about any kind of art is you're always hopefully doing better than you were a little while ago. So you will be critical of your older work. Uh, let's see what else. If you're, if you're listening to this and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show. Become a subscriber rate and review and if, and if you're watching the video on youtube please subscribe to my channel like the videos you like leave a comment share the show with your friends share the show with your friends the more the merrier so let's see is that all the business i covered patreon i covered the email i covered my website and social media and subscriptions is that all the stuff I think that's all the stuff. Yeah, so today's episode is about reality. It's about the world. It's about how we think. And it's about the way words affect the way we think and the way we perceive things, reality. Now, um, there's a quote attributed to the sci-fi writer named Philip K. Dick. Um, funny name. <laughs> Philip K. Dick. Mr. Dick. Dick. Philip. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. As far as I understand the story, he gave some kind of like speech at a college in California. And afterwards, uh, this young lady came up to him as a, a student and undergrad there. And she's a, she was a fan of Philip K. Dick's writing. And she said to him, you know, I've noticed something in your writing. I noticed that everything you write about deals with reality. And Dick was like, 
you know, I guess you're right. I never really thought of that and I never really did it intentionally, but I, I can see that for sure. And, and the young lady said, well, for sure. That's like a common theme in your writing. Well, since you write about it so much, I, I wanted to ask you, Mr. Dick, in, in your mind, in your words, what is reality? And Philip K. Dick stroked his chin, his, his bearded chin for a moment, looked up and said something like, reality is that which remains after you stop believing in it. Reality is all a reality is something that still remains even though even when you stop believing in it. So so Santa Claus. I don't really believe that Santa Claus comes around anymore. Santa Claus doesn't exist. But if a child believes Santa Claus exists, then Santa Claus exists. Um, God. Some people are 100% um, sure. They have full conviction, full belief that God exists. And uh, because they believe in God, God exists for them. But people who do not believe in God, for them, God does not exist because uh, they don't believe in it anymore. Um, but say this chaise lounge, this chaise lounge I'm sitting on right now, let's say I stop believing in it. Like I fucking meditate for days and days and days about it not being real, that it, it doesn't exist. And when I open my eyes, it's still there. No matter how hard I tried to not believe in it, even if I don't believe in it, uh, it's still there. See, let's say uh, my my desk chair. Um, I've got a Ikea desk with an Ikea chair that I got a number of years ago. And that's where I do my work. Um, other than this podcast, it's where I edit this podcast. But uh, the other day, Yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was working on my day job and I got up to use the restroom. I got up, I scooched the chair back so I could stand up without running into the desk. And uh, I turned and started walking and I stubbed my little toes on my right foot on the leg, on the hard metallic leg of that Ikea chair right next to me. I can see it, but you can't if you're watching this even. Um, if you could hear that, that was me tapping the chair. So, you know, it's well, you don't know it's real because you can't see it for yourself. But I'm telling you, I just tapped on the chair with my hand. Um, and then yesterday morning, instead of my hand, my little toes, my fragile little toes on my my right foot slammed hard into the metal leg of that chair because I didn't think about it. I wasn't thinking about the chair. And at that moment, the chair didn't exist. It wasn't in my mind. 
So say, say you're blind. Say, say you just close your eyes and you walk through a room and there's a chair in the middle of the room. And, um, and, but you can't see the chair there because your eyes are closed or because you're blind and uh, you can't hear the chair because it's not moving around and nothing's touching it. It's just sitting stationary, inert. And uh, so by all intents and purposes, you, with your five senses, you cannot sense that chair. Yet when you walk through the room, your fragile little pinky and ring toes of your right foot your bare right foot slam into the leg of that chair and you get a fucking sharp pain in your foot and you curse out loud ow god damn it god damn it who put that fucking chair there so even though the chair didn't exist because uh, you didn't believe in it. It wasn't in your mind. You assumed, since you were just walking a beeline straight through the room, as if there were no chair there because you didn't know the chair was there. The chair didn't exist at that moment. Yet the moment your foot ran into it, that moment, that impact proved the existence of that chair. So despite you thinking there was no chair, there was still a chair. So that chair is reality. So if anyone ever asks you, what is real? What is reality? You tell them that James J. Asher, the host and creator of that thing, told you to tell them reality is a chair. Mind blown right <laughs> right um that uh, uh, dick's quote reality is what remains <clears throat> even after you stop believing in it i think that is the most accurate and succinct definition of reality there is, at least um, in my reality, until I encounter a quote that does a better job of describing reality, um, then I will say that that new one is, is the best definition of reality. But for what I know, Dick's definition of reality is on point. Reality is that which remains even after you stop believing in it. Um belief there's a whole book a really 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 damn good book based around that whole idea and it's a book from one of my favorite writers and it's probably i think probably his like top well i mean he's got a bunch of top books it's of his like top three most well-known works and i'm talking about the book american gods written by a man named Neil Gaiman. Uh, he's the guy, if you've never heard of him, he wrote um, Coraline. He wrote the book Coraline, and I think he did the script for the movie as well. If you're familiar with the movie, that's, that's him. And he's also just got this great book called American Gods. And in the story of American Gods, gods actually exist. 
and it's gods of every religion throughout history. However, there are new gods and there are older gods. And the older gods are kind of losing strength. And the 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 reason they're losing strength is because the strength that the gods get is from belief. Belief in them gives them strength. Belief in them enforces their existence. Period. So say um, only a few people still worship the god um, Thor. I think Thor is a god, right? Um, or is he like a demigod or something? Well, anyway, Thor, say, exists in real life because people believe in Thor. However, the number of people who believe in Thor is reducing. Say there's only one person left who believes and worships Thor, like legit, like for real believes in Thor. Um, that is the one person keeping Thor alive. And once that person dies, Thor will cease to exist altogether. But there are newer gods, gods like technology. There's a god of technology. There's a god of lust. There's a god of greed. These are the new gods. These are the new beliefs. Um, Loki. Loki's around, but only because only a few people believe in Loki. So, okay, so a god exists only because people believe in it. So a thing exists only because people believe in it. And uh, I think that's a really fucking cool idea. And um, it says a lot about how humans' minds work. Here's a sort of related story, a personal story. I may have talked about it in one of the early episodes of this podcast. I was taking a um, Meisner acting class for the first time. I had taken other acting classes before, but I was taking a Meisner specific acting class in when I was an undergrad. And uh, I won't go into full details about what the Meisner technique entails because uh, that's a long thing and I think I've talked about it before already. So if you're interested, look it up online. There's not a lot of great descriptions online. You can get books about Meisner. That would be a better description or better yet, just go to a class. They're usually not cheap, unfortunately. I, I would totally be in an acting class right now if they weren't so fucking expensive, but they're like just shy of $200. And like, dude, I'm already freaking out over a potential $552 dental bill for something that's not my fucking problem, not my fucking fault. Um, <clears throat> so I'm freaking out about that. I... I I don't have the money for an acting class, but I wish I did, dude. Anyway, um, speaking of reality and belief, belief is probably one of the most 
powerful things that a human can do. To believe is a powerful thing. So I was doing this exercise and it was a sort of improvised exercise. Um, not to be confused with like comedy improv, this is different. Uh, Meisner technique relies upon improvisation in that you are just living, not acting. You are being. You are literally living and being in the like Buddhist sense. You are being in the moment and just accepting the circumstances of the scene. Um, the circumstance that I created for this scene was that um, my dad had died. Yeah, my dad had died. And I had to get some money together for a thing, but I didn't have enough money. So I had to um, enroll or sign up for a uh, like a juggling contest. And uh, and if I won the juggling contest, then I would end up with exactly the amount of money I would need to bury my dad and fulfill his wishes. Uh, the the more thorough and real to you and grounded your circumstances you create for these um, improv scenes and in the Meisner classes, the better they work. Um, so I came up with all sorts of details for this about my dad's his death. He died of heart conditions, um, which oddly enough, he had some heart conditions of few years after that that I didn't even really put together until just now um kind of prescient man I, I have predictions sometimes but you know whatever um so I was doing the scene and let me tell you and I was practicing juggling and then the scene partner knocks on the door of the set we were in of the classroom and I go and answer the door and I just let the person in and go back to juggling. And I'm trying to juggle because I have to juggle well and I have to win the juggling contest so I can get the money to bury my dad and pay for something, something else that was like very grounded and real for me. Um, even though it was imaginary, it was very realistic to my, my real life circumstances even though it was all imaginary, my dad wasn't dead or anything. And let me tell you, I suck at juggling. And I had to juggle for a play like a couple years prior to taking this Meisner class. And I, I was taught by people who were really good at juggling. I practiced and practiced and practiced. And I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. I'm not the best juggler. And... Um, I guess I didn't put in 10,000 hours, but I didn't care that much about it. Um, so I'm not a great juggler. And I was doing this scene in class and I was struggling to juggle, uh, just failing. I was failing miserably at juggling while also doing repetition, which is very much a um, like a token thing for Meisner technique where you just kind of like repeat something back and forth, something that you notice about the other person, be it what they're wearing or better yet, their behavior, um, just noting their behavior and uh, 
repeating back and forth and letting that evolve however it is don't force it you don't want to force it just let the repetition evolve um again that's like a that's a very compacted topic right there repetition and i don't really want to get into it right now look it up on your own if you want um so i was doing these repetition and failing at juggling and uh before i knew it I just started crying because at a certain point um, it dawned on me that I was not going to win this juggling contest and I was not going to get the money to bury my dead dad. And, um, and I was just fucked in general, like at a certain point in the exercise, it dawned on me that I'm just, this is not possible for me to do. Um, and I broke down. I started crying and sobbing really hard. Like this was the one of the hardest I've sobbed um, as a young adult into adult, even through adolescence. This was one of the hardest times I ever cried. And um, the instructor had to cut the scene because I couldn't even continue with the scene. I was just non i wasn't functioning anymore i i couldn't do the repetition i couldn't do the uh the challenging exercise of juggling i was just totally consumed in grief and despair and um so we cut the scene and the teacher was like that was a great job but this is also a great example of why or he was like this is also a great example of the sort of um, balancing act you have to take with acting. Because if you go a little too far, you won't be able to complete the scene. If you break down so much, crying so much, that you can't continue the scene, uh, then the scene's no good. Then, you're no, then you can't, you know, the scene's over with. And if that's happening, the play's over with, if it's a play. So you have to be careful, you know? Find a middle ground. Don't be acting, don't be performing acting, but also don't be dysfunctional, you know? You gotta find a middle ground. Um, and while he was saying that, my scene partner was trying to console me because the thing is, the reason I was crying and continued to cry is that I literally, I mean, like I got so far into the scene, like so into the moment and into the circumstances, I literally believed that my dad was dead. I literally believed that my dad was dead, that he had died five days prior to the moment at which I was doing that scene. That was like part of the circumstances I built for myself in that scene. He died five days early and I believed it. You know, by the time the instructor cut us off, I could not, I could not be convinced that my dad was not dead. I was 100% convinced that he was dead. And my other classmates, especially my scene partner was like patting me and hugging me and like trying to console me. And they were like, dude, 
your dad's not dead. It's not real. It's not real. This was just, you were just playing pretend. And I was like, I'm, I'm, he's fucking dead. No, what? are you sure? Are you sure? I don't really know. Uh, this, this description I'm giving you, I mean, I, I can't even begin to give, give it justice how real this felt for me. Reality, my reality literally shifted in an instant just from acting, just from playing pretend. My reality shifted. I'm not even exaggerating. It's not even hyperbole. I 110% believed that my dad was dead. And I tried to call him after class and I was still <laughs> trying to trying to breathe, but like choking on my tears. I tried to call his cell phone. He didn't answer. I got the voicemail. That didn't fucking help me. And my scene partner, Angela, she was like, hey, 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 your dad's, I'm sure your dad's fine. Your dad's not dead. Let's just get you, let me go get you a cookie. Okay, you want me a cookie? And I said, yes, please, I think. She's like, I, you need a cookie. That will make you feel better. So Angela escorted me a couple blocks down to a bakery and she bought me a cookie and we sat on a curb and smoked cigarettes and I ate the cookie and I got to feeling better and um, Angela said, okay, you look like you're okay now. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I think I, I'm still not sure if my dad's alive, but I think I'm okay now. And she's like, good. Um, now I need to get to another class. Are you going to be all right if I leave you here? And I was like, yeah, go ahead. Don't let me hold you up. And so she went to class and I was, you know, I thanked her, um, effusively. Is that a right? Is that a good word? Effusive. I, I thanked her a lot for the cookie and for the consolation and company. And, um, and when she left, I just kind of like sat there for a bit. And I got a text message from my dad saying, hey, I missed your call. What's up? My dad was alive. Despite my minutes early, minutes earlier, genuinely believing that my dad was dead, no longer alive in real life, in my real personal life, not just in my scene, but in my own personal life. I thought he was dead. I believed it for that oh, 30 minutes or so. That was because I was like, so the technique worked. Um, acting techniques work. The ones that work fucking work, dude. And, uh, and if you allow them to work, then you uh, kind of like trick yourself into believing imaginary circumstances. So you're not acting, you're living within imaginary circumstances. And uh, that's the definition of good acting. And uh, that's also kind of the definition of what I'm talking about today is what you believe is what you perceive. What you believe is what you perceive. What you perceive constitutes your reality. Um, what you believe is what you perceive. We create our own realities. If 
we believe in something, you know, if you believe that everyone is an asshole because you are an asshole, if you believe that you are an asshole and you believe that everyone else is an asshole, then to you, everyone else will appear to be an asshole. You will look at their behavior, other people's behavior through the lens of how is this person going to fulfill my presumption that they are an asshole? Um, I had a an epiphanous moment around the time that I had my uh, my weird reality shift breakdown in the Meisner class. I was walking around town one night. And an idea came to me. Now, I had always been a bit of a worrywart, kind of an anxious fellow, um, just worrying about so many different things. And one of the frequent worries was, what do other people think about me? I, and then I would just, you know, spend hours a day, the majority of the day, even while I was doing other things, doing homework, being around friends and loved ones, I was only halfway there. The other half of me, the other half of my mind was wrapped up in itself, worrying over, uh, rehashing, over analyzing <clears throat> situations I had had previously, be it years prior or earlier that same day, I'd be thinking, did I fuck up? Is this person, does this person think I'm a jerk now? Does this person think I'm a moron? Um, how is this going to affect my future a relationship with them? Yada, yada, yada. Just always thinking, what do people think about me? Um, and not like in a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, not in a very, um, you know, confident sort of way. It was more like, how is this person judging me now? And, um, and that was on my mind a lot. And I see that in other people today whom I am very close to. I know certain people who suffer that exact same ailment that I used to, and I still sometimes do, uh, but not nearly as much. It's getting better the older I get. I'm getting better at just not fucking caring anymore the older I get. Um, not like when I say not caring, I don't mean like, well, I don't care if you die kind of a thing. It's just like, I. I don't have time to be stressed about this anymore. And it's probably, you know, I've been through this enough. I can tell this is probably a non-issue and uh, they're probably not thinking about me. And that was the epiphanous moment I had one night when I was walking around downtown Tahlequah early in the evening. Um, or shit, it might've been in Stillwater. Uh, sometime when I was in college, I had this moment where it clicked for me and I was like, wait, I'm always wrapped up in my own head, 
worrying about something that I did, worrying about what other people think about me. But the thing is, everyone is living their own life through their own eyes, through their own lens, in their own history, um, in their own reality. Everyone lives literally their own reality and everyone else is wrapped up in their own heads. Here I am worrying about what others think of me while probably at the same time, everyone else is maybe worrying, what do people think about me? Everyone's worrying about themselves. So if you did something that, you know, is completely, uh, if you think you did something that would like get you in trouble at work, maybe if you like put a certain inflection on something that you said and you worry that maybe they're going to, you know, talk trash about you behind your back, even though it was nothing egregious, something very small and silly. Blowing up a small or completely non-issue into a giant issue in your head, um, that's something that a lot of people do. A lot of people do that, and they think, oh, that person's thinking about me, and it's going to ruin my life, yada, yada, and it just uh, spirals downward ever and ever into the abyss. But everyone does that. And my epiphanous moment that I had was very liberating when I figured out, wait, I'm in my head, everyone else is in their heads, people, they're probably not thinking about me, they have their own concerns. They're dealing with their own bullshit um, dentist insurance, dental insurance bills, you know? People are living their own lives. People have their own problems and their own concerns and their own worries and their own anxieties. So in all probability, they're probably not thinking about you while you're at home twiddling your thumbs, completely missing all all the life around you, letting it fly right past you while you're busy worrying about what that other person thinks of you, they're probably not thinking about you. I mean, unless you're like a close relative or something, or unless you're sleeping with that person or something, you know, they're probably not thinking about you. Isn't that nice? They're not fucking thinking about you. The spotlight is not on you. They've got their own spotlight on themselves. How fucking liberating is that? All this stuff, all this worry. Maybe they're laughing at me because I'm like going thin at the crown of my head. Maybe they don't like the way I dress or something. They don't like the way I walk. They think I'm dumb. They think I'm weirdo or something. No, probably not. And if they are spending a lot of time thinking about you, judging you for really petty things, well, then that person just sucks. Because what kind of person sits around and comes up with like petty, uh, like, like looks for petty things to judge other people about? A lot of people do that too, but those people suck. And those aren't most people. Most people just want to get along just want to get on with their lives, reduce trouble, reduce stress in whatever form. I believe, I believe that's what most people want. Most people, not all, but most.
Um, so in that way, my reality shifted when I stopped believing that everyone was thinking about me all the time. And really, that's kind of narcissistic. You know, narcissism doesn't necessarily have to lift yourself up. Narcissism doesn't necessarily have to be with you um, being braggadocious, um, overconfident. Um, narcissism could be self-absorption in any form. If you're self-obsessed with judging yourself or putting yourself down or thinking up ways that your life is going to fall into ruin at any moment, if you're looking for every fucking mistake you ever did, you're thinking of yourself. That's narcissism. At a certain point, I mean, you got to admit, that's it's like obsession and some narcissism because you're just obsessed with yourself. So, <laughs> so it was kind of narcissistic of me to think that other people were thinking of me um, in a judgmental fashion. Um, where am I going with this? Reality shift. I don't know how to make a transition into this thing, but I've, the way the language, the language a person uses also affects um, a person's reality. The words you use, uh, it affects the way you think, the syntax of your language, the context of your culture informs what you believe and it informs your reality. It performs it informs what you believe, informs what you perceive. So like, for example, the Inuit people have about nine different words for snow. So there's all sorts of different kinds of snow. That's because that's a big part of their culture because it has to do a lot with their survival. Uh, they have many words to, to describe many different types of snow. Now, what do we have in English? We've got flurries, fluffy snow, packed snow, um, and then slush. That's four things. But I think the Inuit one is like total. It's a lot more in-depth uh, description of snow. Or say the Italians. The Italians have nine different words for the word love there is a specific word for the type of love you have for someone you're fucking someone you're married to the love you have for a friend the love you have for family the love you have for an idea or a show or something there's specific different words whereas in english we only have the word love or like like <laughs> Do you like like me? Do you love love me? And that's about as uh, in-depth as we get in English with the word love. Although you can use that one word to apply it to different types of love, but there's no specific words for all the different types of love. So again, this sort of like dictates um, the, the cognitive tools we have because words... Our cognitive tools, language is a is a tool, um, not just of communicating, but also of processing information 
that we pick up with our senses. The words we have give us the ability to describe, articulate, understand, and process stimuli. We're always getting a lot of stimuli all at once. Um, people who have autism or Asperger's have this to a slighter degree, or even babies, um, they have difficulty really, I guess, compartmentalizing the different stimuli hitting them. So they you get overwhelmed with colors and sounds and smells and thoughts, uh, unformed thoughts nonverbal thoughts going on in your head these sorts of things like uh, people if you're like tripping really hard you kind of short circuit your brain so it, it shakes up the the structure that has been imprinted on your mind throughout um, your your upbringing and and in a large part through your language um, all these things just kind of like it hits the reset button. So the structure of your brain or the structure of how your brain processes the information coming into it, um, it kind of opens up and everything will hit you at once and you kind of have a hard time processing it. Or to a certain extent, maybe it just gets a little exaggerated or weird or mixed up. These things change. Uh, and, and the language you use, it's much like a, like a computer language. Your brain, the way you perceive the world around you, it's like, say, pure raw stimuli is ones and zeros. It's circuit open, circuit closed. Now, say you get a bit of code that makes sense of those ones and zeros and turns them into something useful. Um, and then those, those strings of uh, coding go on to make a full language, which is a way that you interact with and perceive and process the ones and zeros. Um, it's kind of very similar to how our brains work. As far as I understand, I'm no expert. This is totally bro science, by the way. This is just me talking about what I know and what I understand of what I've experienced and stuff that I've read and heard. Uh, so this is definitely James science, but yeah, our brains are like computers. Uh, language to a large extent dictates our reality. And I recently saw a Star Trek Next Generation episode called... Let me, I've got it right here. I, Jalad something. Uh, let's see, what is it? Darmok and Jalad. I think that's the name of the episode. I believe it was maybe season five, episode three. Look it up. Star Trek Next Generation um, episode name Darmok and Jalad. And there was a line in that, or maybe the thing is Darmok and Jalad and Tanagra. The, the episode, I had to watch it twice, like once the night before and then the next afternoon because I loved it so much. It was my top favorite episode in the show so far. I absolutely love 
the way that Next Generation explores everything, philosophical, uh, concepts, scientific, uh, you know, <laughs> theories, ideas, all sorts. It, it just explores existence. Uh, it gets down to the to the small little bits of like how we interact with the world and, and calls into question and examines things that maybe we take for granted, like the language that we use informs what, uh, how we interact with the world around us. Uh, it informs the way we communicate with people. And that episode, Darmok and Jalad, the, um, the members of the Starship Enterprise meet up with this culture of this um, alien race who's I forget the name of that race but in the exposition at the beginning of the episode some of the um, members of the Enterprise were talking about oh yeah some other Federation people tried to meet with these other um, this alien race and uh, they couldn't I mean there was no threat. They didn't seem threatening at all or anything. As a matter of fact, they seemed very welcoming. However, um, we can't figure out their language. And we've got a universal language. We've crossed barriers, uh, ling linguistic barriers between thousands of different um, different races and cultures throughout the universe. We've crossed those barriers and we've come up with tools to, you know, have a common language or or just translation tools so we can all understand each other. But this one race that we know about, for some reason, we just can't figure out what the hell they're talking about. And they don't seem to understand us either. And uh, it's bizarre, but we're meeting with them today. So let's try to set up a trade route with them, eh? And so I'm not going to break down the whole episode, but I definitely urge you to watch it. If you have Hulu or Netflix, Star Trek Next Generation is on both of them. And uh, look up the season number and episode number, Darmok and Jalad, D-A-R-M-A-K and Jalad, J-A-L-A-D, Darmok and Jalad. Well... The episode really gets into language and the way that these people think. The, the, the whole syntax of their language is completely different than the way that we humans use language, especially in the English language. Um, this other alien race spoke through metaphor only. They're, I'm doing a poor job of like, you got to watch the episode to really, they break it down a lot better than I can recall right now. But um, just the structure of their language is completely different than, than the English um, syntax, English grammar. Um, and that affected the way that they thought and it affected the way that they communicated. But the gist of the whole episode was two different cultures who don't understand each other, who don't speak the language. They take the time and make the effort to try to understand one another 
so that um, they can have peace and connection. And, you know, despite looking different, despite sounding different, despite being different in every fucking sense, they at least made the effort to actively try to find a way to communicate with one another. And they did. The humans and that the alien race, they did find a way to communicate with one another. Um, and through that, they got peace. And I mean, it's a tragic episode too. I'm not going to give anything away, but I cry. The two times that I've seen it, I've cried every time. And it's just such a beautiful episode and such a beautiful message. And that's one of the things I really love. Another one of the things I really love about Next Generation and the thing that I miss in so many shows is a lesson. I love that the show has a lesson. I love that the show has a, a moral. Um, I wish more shows had that. I wish more people utilized, effectively utilized entertainment as a means to educate. Um, well, through setting up communication, they were able to reach peace. And I feel like on Earth, we humans, between we humans, we humans, the way we treat other things, animals, plants, rocks, the Earth itself, anything, the way we humans treat things is, uh, on a large scale, I wish we did more to learn, put more energy and time and effort and priority and value into trying to communicate with people with whom we don't understand, trying to understand people, trying to communicate, trying to open up, trying to make a connection. Because most problems, every problem that is not, say, an act of God, like a hurricane, like a weather freak thing, all human created problems stem from one thing and one thing only. And that is communication or lack thereof without communication we crumble with communication we open ourselves up to understanding we open ourselves up to empathy and compassion and patience we open ourselves up to the other person's perspective so that we're no longer thinking about ourselves and no longer living in fear no longer living in our self-created false evidence, no, no longer inventing evidence, false evidence appearing real. Instead, we are thinking of the other person, putting ourselves in their shoes, trying to look through their lens, trying to understand how we would live in their circumstances, using our imagination to try to find some way to not just sympathize, but feel what the other person feels and then communicate and proceed through that way and through that way only through communication true open communication that is the only way we will ever have peace and prosperity so i'll leave you with this find some time today to think about 
how much you think about yourself. Try to think about what evidence are you inventing to inform this perhaps false reality that you've created for yourself to self-fulfill your prophecy of uh, being a failure or is there someone that you have a misunderstanding with? Is there something that perhaps you're missing about that person? Something you're failing to see from their perspective. If you don't understand their behavior, maybe you need to look a little harder or find another angle to look at the situation. Communicate. 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 I love you all. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week. Bye.